here at Crossway, and we've seen how we are compelled to love others. We've seen how we are compelled to obey the truth. And today we come to our third of four, Crossway Fellowship is compelled to walk together. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the scriptures. Lord Jesus, in your goodness, you have brought and you are bringing this local church together. And Lord, you are strengthening us to do mighty things for your glory and for your kingdom. And so we ask that you would help us now as we come to your word uh, to understand it, to see our lives and our community in light of your truth. We ask all of these things in your glorious name. Amen. When I say walk together, that we are compelled to walk together, I don't mean just spending time with each other, though that's part of walking together. I don't even mean supporting one another in crisis, though that also is part of walking together. To walk together means to make spiritual progress as a people in community, not in isolation. In fact, spiritual progress as a people, as a community, is necessary. There is much spiritual progress that cannot be made in isolation on our own. Now, there are some things. We develop a, a walk with the Lord Jesus. We have personal study. We pray to the Lord individually. But there are many parts of the Christian life that are essential to spiritual progress, to spiritual growth that can only happen when we walk together. Walking together is fundamental to being a Christian. It's fundamental to being a church. You might be surprised to know that the Bible actually never uses the word community. For that matter, it never uses the phrase walk together, though the metaphor of walking is used often. We are to walk in Christ. We are to walk in a worthy way. We are to walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. But to walk is not just to live. So, and f- as some Bible translations will, will translate the word walk as live. The NIV does this a lot. I don't like it. Because it's one thing to just live life, it's another to walk. The Bible uses that metaphor, that word for a reason, because walk means to progress, to progress through life, to move from one point to the next point. We are all moving toward an end, and we should walk together. So walking together in community is so woven into the Bible's text that it's almost assumed. The Bible never views a follower of Jesus Christ. It never presents a healthy disciple as someone outside the context of a community of faith. And when the Bible does talk about what we call community, what we call walking together, it uses different terms. It uses its own images for that. For example... The key word in the New Testament for community is the word fellowship or koinonia. For those of you who know the word, that's a a well-known term. It's a word that means sharing in common. It's a very rich word. In our English Bibles, it's translated fellowship, partnership, communion. It was a word that was used to uh, describe business partnerships legal relationships, marriage, friendship, alliances. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, uses the term often to speak of their, generous, uh, their generosity, their partnership in the gospel by supporting his apostolic work, his mission. So we also see walking together in certain phrases in the Bible, like one another. We talk about the one another's how we're to treat one another. And so here are some examples, just real quick. Love one another. 
outdo one another in showing honor. Live in such harmony with one another. Welcome one another. Greet one another. Have the same care for one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Encourage one another and build one another up. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another. It's everywhere. And these are just the positives. There are also negative statements like, don't grumble against one another. Even a stronger example, I think, though I've never seen anyone make a point of it, is the phrase, among you. It's just one of these little prepositional phrases that kind of disappears in the text when you're reading. How many of you have ever done a study on the phrase, among you? Let me give you some examples. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, Acts 6.3. He said to them, this is the Apostle Paul, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, Acts 20.18. The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, 1 Corinthians eleven, eighteen. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, 1 Corinthians 16, 10. Falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is an unbeliever who comes into your worship service, 1 Corinthians 14, 25. Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, 2 Corinthians 13, 3. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray, James 5, 13. I, I exhort the elders among you, 1 Peter 5, 1. False prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. This is just a smattering. It's everywhere. You can't have among you unless the you is a plural. On top of these, then, there are all of these images, these metaphors that the Bible uses to establish Christians as a community. Believers are a people of God, a body, a new humanity, a flock, a holy nation, a chosen race, an assembly. And we don't have time to even explore all of these today. But the Bible is saturated with these images that highlight that Christians are to be a community, that we are meant to be together. So today, let's ask the question that we've asked the last couple of weeks with loving others and obeying the truth, and that is, why are we compelled to walk together. Why are we compelled to walk together? And yes, just like the last couple of weeks, we will be seeing a bunch of different passages. Okay, I want you to see how this is all over the place in different ways. And first, we are compelled to walk together because by God's design, we belong to each other. By God's design, we belong to each other. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is, is explaining the importance of a diversity of giftedness within the church. That there is purpose and design in every Christian being gifted by the Spirit of God in a different way for the good of the church. And he makes the argument that not everyone should be hands and not everyone can be mouths and not everyone can be feet and that all the different parts of Christ's body need all of the other parts, need all of the other members. We have diverse gifts, we have diverse roles, and no one is more important than the other. I want to focus on how we become part of Christ's body. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. 
For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So just as we all have hands and feet and knees and elbows and shoulders and a head, but we're all one person, so the body of Christ is all one and it's made up of all the different members and all of their gifts. For in one spirit... We were all baptized or immersed, completely put into, placed into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There's a oneness, a togetherness. Jews or Greeks, the most fundamental, volatile, racial divide throughout history. Slave or free, a fundamental status, economic life status. Either one, all of them, God has baptized. You notice we were all baptized. We didn't baptize ourselves into the body. We didn't choose our place in it. We didn't arrange ourselves in the body of Christ. We were baptized into one body. And this for in one spirit could be for by one spirit, that it is the spirit of God who has done this. And all were made to drink of one spirit. What are the results for all these individual members of this one body? Verse 26 If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We belong to each other. We are Christ's body. But Paul says, notice this, that if one member suffers, Christ suffers, it's his body. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together because we belong to each other. It means by belonging to this one body, Christ's body, we belong to each other. Let's look at Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? What's the the basis for this? What's the foundation for this calling? Verse four, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And what he means is of us. He is one God and Father of all of us, who is over all of us, who is through all of us, who is in all of us. One, one. Listen, this is a reality that is. The beginning point of community, of walking together, is understanding that it is not something we have to seek to create. It is a work that God has done. Our perspective and our understanding needs to line up by faith with what God has already said he has already done, which is to make us one. To walk is to live out what God has already done, which is why Paul is calling us here to walk in a manner that is worthy. We all belong to one another If we all belong to each other, then we ought to walk with all humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. John 
says the same thing, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, only he uses this key word, fellowship. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, how do we often use the word fellowship? We use it as something we're experiencing. Have you ever heard the phrase, well, I'm just not in fellowship with the Lord right now? I'm a Christian, but I'm out of fellowship. I've fallen out of fellowship. Now, it's okay to use that term. We're describing something in which we're saying that as a Christian, I'm living disobediently. I'm not, I'm not following Christ or I'm not, my heart, I'm in sin. I'm trapped in sin of some sort. Maybe it's apathy, lethargy. My spiritual appetite is waning. But we use the word that way. That's not how John uses it. When John says we are in fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, he isn't talking about an experience that we float in and out of. He's saying we participate, we are partners in, we share in the life of the Father and the Son and his Son, Jesus Christ. And... By having that fellowship, everyone who has that fellowship has fellowship with whom? One another. That fellowship is also not something that you move in and out of. It is not dependent upon experiencing an encounter with somebody. In fact, this fellowship that John is talking about is not fellowship over a meal or having a deep conversation, but it is a, a, an eternal reality that is established by God. You are in fellowship with those who are in fellowship with the Father and with His Son, which means we are in fellowship even when we're separated. It means that I am in fellowship with brothers and sisters whom I've never met in other parts of the world. Because we share in fellowship with God the Father and with his Son. Now that doesn't mean that the experience of fellowship, being together, is not important. That that personal fellowship is not crucial. You can't do what Paul said in Ephesians 4 with being patient with one another and bearing with one another if you're not with each other. But that kind of fellowship, the personal experience, is built on a reality of what God has done. And what establishes this fellowship? According to John, it's walking in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, as is consistent with the light which is intrinsic to God's very person, then we are in fellowship with him and in fellowship with one another. Therefore, to walk together, we have to be walking in the light, which is another sermon altogether. Okay. So to be one body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all of us, over all of us, through all of us, and in all of us. To be in fellowship means that we belong to each other. We make claims on each other. And we have claims made on us 
by others. We belong to each other. And God has designed us to pursue one another in that belonging. In that belonging, which brings me to point number two. So first of all, by God's design, we belong to each other. And secondly, by God's design, we need each other. We need each other. Can't get a lot more basic than this, can we? We belong to each other, and we need each other. We need each other for help, comfort, support. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. So when he says a good reward for their toil, he doesn't just mean that two people working together will make more money, will be more prosperous, that may be true, but that by toiling, toiling inevitably leads to falling. That if you're going to toil... At some point, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to trip and fall. You're somehow going to find yourself on your back. Toil leads to falling. And if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. That's the reward, the good reward for their toil. Is you, when you hit that wall, when you end up on your backside, you have someone to help you up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? I don't think this is a reference to marriage. It may include marriage, but it's not just marriage. He's talking about camping. He's talking about soldiers on a battlefield huddling together to stay warm on duty? Any of those would fit the picture. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And notice here, two people make up a threefold cord. That's not a band of three people. That's Two people making up a threefold cord that is not easily broken. We are not meant to walk alone. We are meant to walk together. Woe, Solomon says. Woe to him who is alone when he falls. That's a warning. It means you better find somebody. And I don't mean getting married. I mean, you better find a fellow believer who will invest in you and you can invest in. There is safety in numbers. That's what Solomon's saying. There is safety in partnership. If you walk alone, if you toil alone, if you fight alone, you are vulnerable and fragile. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, as Paul is closing his letter to the Corinthians here, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, restore one another. I don't think he's talking necessarily, it could be about conflict, but he's, he's talking about restore one another when someone is hurt, when someone goes down, comfort one another. Agree with one another, which isn't mean hold all the same opinions about everything, but cooperate. Cooperate, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We need comfort from one another. We need cooperation. We need restoration. And here Peter says to serve one another. Now, there are gifts of service, serving gifts. But Peter here is saying that using whatever your gift is for the good of those around you is to serve them. So by preaching and teaching, I'm serving. By 
helping generos- with generosity, with a, uh, gifts, by showing hospitality and, and providing a meal. You are serving. This, he says, is a stewardship. It's a stewardship. It means you have a responsibility to help others with your various gifts, whatever they may be. It's why we formed serve teams. It's why we identify things for you to plug into and say, I want to serve in this way. I'm gifted in this way. Have experience in these things. To serve one another. But it also says this. Think about the implication. Others' service to you is what here? Grace. It's grace for you. It's God's provision for you. It is God's help through one another. And so when others serve you, you need to know how to be served as well as to serve others. To receive services to say, I need help too. I can't do everything. I need the help of brothers and sisters. By God's design, we need each other. We also need each other in our struggle against sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. So we need comfort, we need help, we need support. We also need help, or uh, we need each other in the fight against sin. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need others to exhort us daily. Don't miss that phrase. Every day, it would be right for you to ask yourself every day, have I given a daily exhortation to someone so that they will not be hardened by sin? And for me to ask myself, have I received an exhortation today so that I might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? I need it too. Exhort one another every day. Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. We got to keep each other from drifting, from lagging, from distractions. That's what he means here. Stir each other up. Don't let anybody lag on the side, get distracted and diverted off the path. You got to stir one another up. What about rescuing each other? What about when someone is fallen into a ditch, when they've fallen by themselves, and maybe it's because they've gone off by themselves? Galatians chapter six, verses one and two. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, this caught doesn't mean, ha-ha, found out. If anyone is found out, it means caught, trapped, hooked, ensnared. If anyone is ensnared or trapped in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You gotta go get him. You gotta help her out of the ditch. You can't leave her there. You can't leave him there. Well, who's spiritual? Anybody who's not in the ditch. A spiritual. And there's a warning. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So that you don't think, oh, I'm always the someone who helps other people out. Realizing that you're susceptible to the same temptations. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 really brings all of these thoughts together. These ideas of comfort and help as well as helping one another Uh, In the struggle against sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Anybody grateful for spiritual people over them, whether it's an elder, pastor, or whatever, who admonishes them? Oh, I'm so glad you admonished me. 
Should be. That's what Paul says. Should be grateful for someone to admonish. Oh, I needed that. I needed someone to get in my life and to tell me where that blind spot was. But notice this. Be at peace among yourselves. Here we go. Among yourselves. Among you. And we urge you, brothers, this is not an instruction just to elders or pastors, leaders in the church. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's a responsibility in the body. We're all to admonish one another. We're all to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. So rich, verse, uh, rich terms here. We don't have time to go in in depth this morning. But you can see this is a call on the body. Exhort one another every day. Admonish the idol. Some people need to be rebuked. Some people need to say, that's, that's not right. If you're going to claim to belong to Christ and, and this body of believers, you need to obey the truth. You need to love others. Okay? There are some who are just... They're just faint-hearted. They're given out. There are others who are weak. Their faith's been undermined. Be patient with them all. That's, those are commands for the whole church. So we need each other. By God's design, we need each other. Thirdly, by God's design, the world needs our community. The world needs our community. Everyone needs other people. Everyone needs human connection. Everyone needs human relationships. That's how God has created human beings. We have that need. In a New York Times article from December 22, 2016, entitled, How Social Isolation is Killing Us, Dr. Dhruv Kular reports, quote, since the 1980s, the percentage of American adults who say they're lonely has doubled from 20% to 40%. According to Kular, quote, less social connections results in disrupted sleep patterns, altered immune systems, more inflammation, and higher levels of stress hormones. Isolation increases the risk of heart disease by 29% and stroke by 32%. And, again, quote, isolated individuals are twice as likely to die prematurely as those with more robust social interactions. All told, loneliness is as important to risk factor for early death as obesity and smoking. He concludes by observing, quote, a great paradox of our hyper-connected digital age is that we seem to be drifting apart. Increasingly, however, research confirms our deepest intuition, human connection lies at the heart of human well-being, end quote. What he meant to say was research confirms that God, what God has revealed about how he's created human beings in his image all along. I know he meant to say that. Okay. Yeah. Loneliness and isolation are epidemic in our culture. Just do a Google search on this sometime. You'll find all kinds of, of uh, articles. Understand that when we walk together, we are offering the world something it desperately needs and aches for. In their book, Total Church, authors Tim Chester and Steve Timmis suggest that our approach to mission should include these three elements, building relationships, sharing the gospel, and introducing people to community. And they go on and say that it really doesn't matter what order you do these in. That norm, there's maybe a normal progression building the relationship, sharing the gospel, then introducing to community. But it doesn't always happen that way, and it doesn't have to happen that way. 
that sometimes introducing people to community is what actually ends up building the relationships that share the gospel. This is a key part of mission. And if you really want to talk to anybody about this, talk to Scott Nicholson. Because this is what he talks about all the time. I see you nodding over here, turning around and pointing at people and saying, I've told you this. I've, whoa, I've told you that. Okay, so talk to Scott. All right. This is a key part of our mission. It isn't, it, it is sharing the gospel. But it's building these relationships. It's introducing people to community. Scott has a hiking community. That's why I call it a community. I don't know, the hiking group. What it, that's its purpose. That's its design. Okay, so we build relationships. We share the gospel. We introduce people to community. And you know what? We see this played out on, in Scripture. We see this played out in the Bible. Acts chapter 2. It's a familiar passage. Talk about this. This is the, the, the foundation of the church community. The church has been born. Peter's preached the gospel. has been repentance. 3,000 people have been converted. They've been baptized. And the summary here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So here, first we see this description of this, this togetherness. Notice the terms, fellowship, together, in common. And it really focuses on the generosity it pictures community, but look how it goes on to picture community. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. This implies to me that this wasn't the norm, that everybody had to go to the temple everyone was compelled to go to the temple, but not necessarily together. It is a mark of the new church that they go to temple together. And they are breaking bread in their homes together. That this glad and generous experience, the uh, glad and generous hearts, that these are something that are standing out to everybody else around them. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. So going to temple together, breaking bread in their homes together has led to having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How was the gospel, this message spreading what was, the, what was the sign that something was going on, that God was at work, that these, this church, the Christians, were different? That this group of Jewish, and most of them at this point, if not all of them, but most of them were Jews who had come to faith. They're in Jerusalem. Why are they different? Well, they're doing everything together. <laughs> Spending time together, they're worshiping together, they're receiving teaching together, they're eating together, they're going to temple together. This is amazing. And the Lord added to their number. The community, the doing these things together is part of how God adds to their number. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, a blessing of Paul Proclaims upon the Romans, the church in Rome, I mean by that. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice, one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That glorifying of God, this putting him on display, is done when we say with one voice. How do we say it? 
by living in such harmony with one another. 1 Corinthians 14.25, just to give a little context to this verse, Paul is talking about order in the gathering, in the assembled church, in corporate worship, just as we are this morning. He's talking about some, some boundaries, how gifts are to be used, how we're to treat one another. And he says this, in the midst of all this, he's talking about prophecy in tongues in particular. Verse 25, he says that there will be someone who enters your worship service, this gathering. And if it's chaos, they won't know what's going on or why you're there, essentially. But if you're in order, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is someone who comes into... Now, we don't hold to attractional church ministry. You know what that is? Attractional church ministry is ministry in the church that is, that is based upon getting people to come here. So when you see a church, you get a flyer in the mail, the little card, and it says, hey, we're having a tattoo artist on Sunday morning on stage, and they're going to do gospel tattoos live kind of thing, you know, or whatever it is. We're going to do live kickboxing on stage. and these, That's an attractional model. The idea is, man, if we could just get people into these seats, we can sell them, we can, we can slip them candy, the candy of the gospel underneath the radar. They'll never even know they're getting it. And so we just we put on a show, we do a circus, everybody comes, we slip them candy, and that's an attractional model. The opposite of that is saying, you know, we go, we spread, we go into the world, and we take the gospel there. Which, by and large, is what we do at Crossway. But I will say this, there are times that we here use this facility or our gathering. We don't put on a show, but we will do barbecues in the summer. You should invite people. We will do VBS, Vacation Bible School. We have children from families that don't go to church ever. They'll come to that. Those things are good. They're healthy in both. In this case, Paul is saying that when you're gathered in worship, there is a public aspect. There is the possibility. In fact, he, see, he sees it as an inevitability that somebody who doesn't know Christ is going to end up walking in here and sitting down. Maybe they come with someone. Maybe they've ended up off the street. Whatever it is, well, they better see that, that God is among you. God is really among you. The world needs our community. So this is why we walk together. Very broad, okay, very broad principles. Very basic and broad. But again, in this series, we want to give you the biblical foundations for why we identify these things as our core commitments as a church. That these things compel us. Now, I want to take just a few minutes, to reinforce these things from the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, most of you will know, um, lived during World War II. He was a German Lutheran pastor and theologian. He was um, theologically and classically trained. He died uh, for his faith, as well as because he would not compromise and become continue with the state church that, uh, that bought into Nazism. He opposed Nazism and all of its cruelty. And he also participated politically in a, a scheme, a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, which brings up a lot of ethical questions. Fascinating reading. But he ends up being uncovered as part of this conspiracy, imprisoned, and then executed right toward the end of World War II. But Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in a six-week period, wrote a book that is, has never gone out of print. It was one that he didn't expect to be very popular, and it's, called, it's entitled Life Together. 
And it really is a record of his experience as a seminary uh, president, professor. Uh, He organized a seminary um, underneath, under the radar, kind of a covert (laughs) seminary under the Nazi regime. It was eventually closed by the Gestapo. Um, But uh, during the seminary experience, they lived uh, almost a community life, uh, almost a a commune. They lived together, they studied together, and these men were already trained as pastors, but he wanted them to be able to preach and proclaim the gospel. They couldn't do that with their normal seminary training. So he brought them in to do this in this kind of rebel church, rebel seminary. So Life together is all about their experience, what it meant to be a community. And I want to share some of his thoughts. Here in his words and in these, uh, these exhortations, things out of these passages of Scripture that we've just read. First of all, reinforcement from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Number one, let us speak God's word to each other. Let us speak God's word to each other. Help must come from the outside. Just stop right there. What's he mean by that? It means nobody has the answers in themselves. It's a complete rejection of the world's entire fundamental philosophy of self-help. Help must come from the outside. And it has come and comes daily and anew in the word of Jesus Christ, bringing us redemption, righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. But God put this word into the mouth of human beings so that it may be passed on to others. When people are deeply affected by the word, they tell it to other people. God has willed that we should seek and find God's living word in the testimony of other Christians in the mouths of human beings. So we should study our Bible. We should know the word, but we are strengthened when that word comes to us through the speech of one another. We need that. The help must come from outside. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened. Because living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves without cheating themselves out of the truth. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. They need them solely for the sake of Jesus Christ. About that, we need to speak God's word to each other. Admonish the idol. Help the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted. So speaking God's word to each other. Secondly, let us be disillusioned with each other. This is probably my favorite one. Because you, what? Let us be disillusioned with each other. Now listen, these are some long quotes. But you guys are smart people. You can keep up with the long quotes. It is essential for Christian community that two things become clear right from the beginning. First, Christian community is not an ideal, but a divine reality. Second, Christian community is a spiritual, not an emotional reality. On innumerable occasions, a whole Christian community has been shattered because it has lived on the basis, the basis of a wishful image. Is church what you expect it to be? Does everybody behave the way you think they should? Is it the Garden of Eden that you assumed the community of Christ would be? Bonhoeffer says that's a wishful image. Certainly, serious Christians who are put in a community for the first time will often bring with them a very definite image of what Christian communal life should be, and they will be anxious to realize it, to make it happen, to try to build it. But God's grace quickly frustrates all such dreams. 
a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us to an understanding of genuine Christian community. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that we have all these dreams, all these expectations, and the best thing for us is for us to become completely disillusioned with them, with the reality that we sit with sinners, that we park next to sinners if they didn't take our place, that we have to work with other people who need to grow, and that at some point we become need to be disillusioned with our false ideas, our illusions of what church should be and what community should be and what we think all Christians ought to be like, and even with ourselves, if we're going to be led to an understanding of genuine Christian community. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live in a dream world even for a few weeks, and to abandon ourselves to those blissful experiences and exalted moods that sweep over us like a wave of rapture. We call that a mountaintop experience. He's not going to let us live there. For God is not a God of emotionalism, but the God of truth, which means we have to see each other as we truly are. Only that community which enters into the experience of this great disillusionment with all its unpleasant and evil appearances begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this moment of disillusionment comes over the individual and the community, the better for both. However, a community that cannot bear and cannot survive such disillusionment, clinging instead to its idealized image when that should be done away with, loses at the same time the promise of a durable Christian community. I want Crossway to be a durable Christian community, not one that lives under an illusion. Sooner or later, it is bound to collapse. Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself, ask yourself that question. Do I love the dream of a Christian community more than I love this community, this church in itself? Because those who do become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Well, what about when someone sins against me? What about when I'm wronged? What about when I'm truly taken advantage of? Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the common life, is not the one who sins still a person with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? This is, guys, this is a revolutionary perspective he's talking about here. Think about what he's saying. Will not another Christian's sin be an occasion for me ever anew to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God and Jesus Christ? Talk about a redemptive view of other people's sin and our own. Therefore, will not the very moment of great disillusionment with my brother or sister be incomparably wholesome for me because it so thoroughly teaches me 
that both of us can never live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed that really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. That's 1 John chapter 1. The bright day of Christian community dawns wherever the early morning mists of dreamy visions are lifting. It's beautiful, isn't it? He doesn't mince words, and he's penetrated to the heart of it. Let us be disillusioned with one another. Thirdly, and lastly, let us be grateful for our community. Let us be grateful for our community. He goes on to write, by the way, this is all in the first chapter. Okay. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian community in which we have been placed, even when there are no great experiences, no noticeable riches, but much weakness, difficulty, and little faith. Well, that sounds like a, that sounds like a, a loser church, doesn't it? <laughs> no great experiences, no noticeable riches, a lot of weakness, difficulty, little faith. And if on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so miserable and so insignificant and does not at all live up to our expectations, then we hinder God from letting our community grow according to the measure and riches that are there for us all in Jesus Christ. Be thankful for one another. Be thankful for Crossway Fellowship. Those dots that you see, the ellipsis there, that's because he now goes into a word to pastors. And I didn't include it to absolve myself. I did because it doesn't apply to everybody, but he talks about pastors complaining about their congregations and how difficult they are. And he rebukes us. Then he goes on. Like the Christian sanctification, Christian community is a gift of God to which we have no claim. Only God knows the real condition of either our community or our sanctification. What may appear weak and insignificant to us may be great and glorious to God. Just as Christians should not be constantly feeling the pulse of their spiritual life, so too the Christian community has not been given to us by God for us to be continually taking its temperature. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more assuredly and consistently will community increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize. It's not something we've got to build, force, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. So, let us speak the word of God to each other. Let us be disillusioned with each other. We need to get past the idea that we think everyone else should be perfect and treat us perfectly. And instead, as Bonhoeffer says, see it as an opportunity to rejoice in the fact that two sinners can come together under God's forgiveness and know it together. And lastly, let us be grateful. Let us thank God. And the more you thank him, the more those disillusionment, the more that disillusionment will take place, the healthy disillusionment, and the more the community will actually increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. Bonhoeffer also makes a point. He says, in Christ, we truly have one another. We truly have one another. 
Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning as we do every week as a community. And I pray that you will encourage the the hearts of your people to treasure our church family that we would truly walk together and that walking together needs this disillusionment. It needs this gratitude. We need to speak the word of God to each other. Lord, you've designed us. You've designed us to belong to one another. You've designed us to to need each other. Lord, help us to, to truly walk together. And we know that by your strength and by your faithfulness, the people of Crossway will continue to do so. We love you and ask that you would be pleased with our worship now.